0: We are going to be reading through revelation 7 the whole chapter and then the first verse of chapter 8 okay so let me read that after this i saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree then i saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living god and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had given him given power who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne of the... Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour." It's the Word of God. Now, after chapter 6, which I know, I know, my friends, I know it challenged every one of you, and I don't revel in challenging people, but what do you expect when you meet a holy God? When we meet an infinite God, if you aren't always challenged by him, you have not met a holy God. I can't always wrestle. So, you know, it's difficult. So chapter 6, we see God roaring, the roaring of the Lion of Judah, And chapter 7 comes, and my goodness, it's the most hopeful, the most optimistic chapter in the entire Bible, or the entire book of Revelation. Um, And it's not by accident. It comes as a response to the very last three words of chapter 6. The last words of chapter 6 were, who can stand? And chapter 7 then comes saying, this is who can stand. So it comes as a response to it. And I wonder if John needed a break I wonder if John watching, remember you heard and you read what, was see, what, was, what John saw. John saw the opening of the seals, the horsemen, the, the trials, the trouble, the, the heavens falling apart. I wonder if this point now comes where, he, where God says, let me give you a breather here and show you some hope in the midst of it. Because the question that they cry out with, who can stand, was probably John's question. Who can stand if this is the case? If God is angry, we all deserve wrath. Who can stand? And then the answer comes like a fresh wind, like grace to us. And so this interlude happens here before it gets to the closing or the opening of the last seal at the first verse of chapter 8. So if we look at this carefully, and we're just going to ask questions, the best way to understand, well, anything, especially Revelation, is to ask questions. So we're going to ask three simple questions of this passage and see the incredible hope and peace that comes in it. It is, what is the seal? Who is sealed? And what does it mean? Okay, What is the seal? Who is sealed? What does it mean? So, what is the seal? John needs comfort. Remember, always, I said in the first passage, first sermon, you must, every time you open up Revelation and read it, it doesn't matter what verse, remember it's being written to a pastor who's in jail and suffering and so is his church. He needs comfort. And if we look at it that way, we then see, what is he look, looking at? Well, it looks like chapter 7 is a flashback because the four angels he sees that are holding back the winds right and the winds are there to damage the earth it's pretty obvious that those four those four beings are the horsemen so he's looking back to a time before the seals were open because God is saying hey I know it looks, gr- looks grim but I, I accounted for it and for those who I love and those who I've chosen I've accounted for them in my plan, and here is a glimpse of it so that you don't despair in the midst of the opening of the seals. So, he sees these four beings holding back the winds, and this fifth angel comes. Don't try to decide who the fifth angel is. It doesn't tell us. Scholars will have spent a lot of ink trying to decide, who is this fifth angel? Is it Gabriel? Is it Michael? Many people think it's a Queen Elizabeth I. My, I don't please. It just says the fifth, another angel. Let's leave it there. <laughs> um, if it's Queen Elizabeth I've got a lot of questions but, and, and that's not all I've seen everything anyway. so this fifth angel comes and he says don't set loose anything until I have gone around with the seal and sealed the foreheads of all this, the chosen or the servants of God um, and so we have to ask this question what is this seal? is it a physical seal? many people think it's a physical seal remember what I've said before if you're going to read Revelation as every word literal then you have to swallow the fact that this is an angel with a seal and we're all going to have a physical sign on us. Or do we see it symbolically? How do we, how do we know? How do we decide? Well, I think that the text itself in the Bible tells us how to see this seal. So let's look at what a physical seal is, first of all. Let's, here's one Oh, Good timing. Well done, Ben. The picture's up there before I asked for it. So this is a seal. This. Is actually a 3,000 year old seal, was found in Israel at Megiddo, and it belonged to a guy named Shema, and it says on there that he is a high official of King Jeroboam II of the northern Israel kingdom in the 8th century BC. So this guy would have had a seal from the king, it's this lion here, and he would have used it. An ancient seal would have been used much like a signature is today, right? In fact, if you ever sign a document, you notice there's a little seal beside it you have to sign beside? It's the same idea. And when you sign with a seal, when you stamp it, you're showing your approval of it. Your approval of it, you're saying, I'm permitting whatever's in here, I authorize whatever's in here, I own whatever's in here. So you can find this seal was used on uh, wine bottles, for instance, so wine bottles would have been sealed with clay, and then on the top of them, the seal, to show this this is authorized and owned or distributed by the king. But it wasn't just stuff, it was also people So and cattle. So cattle, today, we still brand cattle with a seal. The idea of ownership and protection, you can't go stealing this cow because it belongs to, I don't know, cattle farmer Joe, whatever, whatever it is. But it's a sign of ownership. And and, uh, not just that, slaves would have oftentimes had, and this is brutal, but they would have had the names of their owners carved into their forehead. Sometimes other parts, but often the forehead because that way you know who's there. They can't run away because they belong to so-and-so. And as a side note, that's not in the sermon, this is what makes it even more beautiful when, Christ, when God says in Isaiah, I've written you on the palms of my hand. Remember that? That, that would, an owner would never do that to his servants. It would be ludicrous. So when the Kai, king of heaven says, I'm going to imprint you on my hand so that everything I do, people know who, that you're mine. It's an incredible scene. But anyway, physical seal. So is it a physical seal? I don't think so. (laughs) Because the Bible then quickly shifts, although there's references to things being sealed continually. For instance, um, Nebuchadnezzar seals up uh, the the lion's den tomb. He puts a seal on it so nobody can open it. When Christ is buried in the tomb, they put a seal over it to keep it secure. But when we look at how it's used in the Old Testament, then you begin to see that when the seal is applied to people, when God speaks of him sealing people, it changes. The way it's spoken about changes, and it changes even more wonderfully in the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, an example would be something like in Ezekiel 9. God is saying, Israel, you've, well, Jerusalem, Judah, you've, you're going to be delivered into the hands of the Babylonians, and death is coming for the city because of all your sin. However, he says, I will send out, his, his messenger is dressed in linen, He sends him out and says, You go and you put a seal on on anyone who is lamenting the sin of Israel. So, in other words, everybody in Israel or in Jerusalem who is actually sorry for their sins, they are sealed. Notice what he's saying. Circumcision means nothing. Having a citizenship card of Israel means nothing. Being ethnically Israelite means nothing. It's those who show by faith that they lament the sin done. That's the ones who are sealed. And that's important as you read Revelation because God is speaking about an Israel within an Israel. Just because you have citizenship in Israel doesn't mean you're saved. Jesus says that continually, right? I can make, God can make Israelites from stones if he wants. And he seals them and those are then kept safe when the destroyer, he says, comes through the city and takes up all the dead and, and literally kills everybody. The ones who are sealed won't die. So that's the symbolic use of the seal. And then when you see how it, the New Testament refers to sealing, it's just, it tells us, I think it tells us exactly how to understand the seal in Revelation. So, first thing you notice, it's this word called sfragizo, sfragizo in Greek. It's used 15 times in the New Testament. More than half of them happen just here in Revelation. And whenever it's used about people again, you see something interesting. And look at Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, first, he says the Holy Spirit, you become a Christian, the Spirit comes to you, He's in you. And he comes as a guarantee. That's a, that's a Greek word that literally means down payment. So, think about this. It's a down payment, meaning, Here's some as a promise to you so that you know I will come back and I'll get you and I'll take what I've given a down payment on. So it's this assurance that's given to us and I'll go into much more detail about what this means later. But it's also an, an issue of ownership that the Holy Spirit is the seal of God. In Israel, circumcision was the seal. If that mark is on you physically, you are part of the covenant people. But in the New Testament, this seems to shift. Presbyterians will say baptism is a sign of the new seal. That's why children are baptized in Presbyterian churches. It seems to me, through Scripture, that this Holy Spirit is the mark of belonging. Of course, it's an invisible mark, isn't it? can't see it. And yet you can see evidence of it, but not always, because some fake it pretty well. But there's this seal. So what is the seal? I believe, without any question, it is the Holy Spirit. So these 144,000, this symbolic number, which I'll talk about in a second, that when he talks about who, those being sealed, he's meaning Christians, believers, believers of every stripe, and when they and the mark that they are saved is they, they have this spirit in them. That's the sign. That's the seal. Now, if that's the case. Let's a- answer this next question: Who is it? Who is sealed? And it may seem like a logical answer, but it's not, <laughs> because um, oh, there you go. The sealed are the servants of God. So he's he's been doing a great job. He's like, he's like he's so on top of it. I'm I'm caught off guard. The seal, who are the people? It's very simple, both verse 3 and 15 say the servants. The ones who serve God are the ones who are sealed. Now, that sounds, you probably think, yeah, we know that, Carl, It's pretty simple. You don't know how much debate there is on this. In fact, if you come to my talk lecture on Thursday, you're going to see that this is a very problematic verse because some people say what John is seeing here are two different groups. There's 144,000, and then when he sees the multitude, that's a different group. Some say this is Israel, 144,000 are just the Israelites, just Jews, and the next group are the Gentiles. So depending on where you stand, now you may think, is this really necessary? I think it is necessary to at least talk about it a little, because again, I'm trying to help us understand how to read this. So I think there's clues given to us in the text that help us understand what's going on, and it's in the stage directions, Okay. At the very first chapter, remember John says he heard something. He heard a sound, like a roaring thunder and so on. And then I turn to see the voice. Remember that? Revelation is a spot. Look, Pay attention. Underline every time it says he heard something or he saw something. And you're going to see, just like here, what he hears, he then turns and sees. So if you're at the Roger Center watching a baseball game and you hear there's 60,000 people there, that's just a number. But when you turn and see it, it's like, wow. There's a lot of people here. And I think there's a difference here that you'll see. What John hears and what he sees are two sides of the exact same coin. He's showing you the same thing. I don't think there's any difference between the 144 and the multitude he sees in the very next verse. I think it's the same. But the difference is what he hears and what he sees. Now, let me show you why I think that, because I think there's evidence in here. And this is the challenge of Revelation. Before I can get to some application, I have to explain a lot, <laughs> and if I don't, there's, uh, well, I'll get even more emails. So, and that's, I love the emails, by the way. I literally love them. Even when you complain to me, I love them. I love them. Because it shows that you want to know, and you're troubled, and you're seeking scripture. If I can provoke you to get into God's word, good. I'm very happy. So ask questions. Anyway, move on. First, what is he here? Verse four. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So, Michael Wilcock, British British scholar, has, uh, with, rightly says, the 144,000 is a suspiciously tidy sort of number that is much more likely to be a symbol than a statistic. He's right. Isn't that weird? 144,000, that's pretty precise. In fact, certain denominations, I won't say the groups, believe this is exactly true, it's literally 144,000. Of course, there's millions of them who believe, so... Th- I'm sorry. There's not enough blood shed, apparently, on the cross to save everybody, just a small group. So I have problems when you limit it to that number, first of all. But then, the other reason I think, not just philosophically, in Scripture, the number 144 will repeat in the book of Revelation, which to me is a sign that you're meant to take it symbolically and connect them as they show up. And we will as we go through this book, so I won't rush ahead. But that's one sign. Two, the number is surprisingly, or maybe not, 12 tribes of Israel, sorry, 12. Twelve apostles or disciples. Twelve times twelve, 144. Times a 1, thousand, 144,000. Now, when Jesus asks Peter, when Peter asks Jesus, actually, how many how many times should I forgive somebody? Jesus responds with what seems to be a, a silly number, right? Seventy times seven. You know, he just throws it out. The reason he's doing that is he's trying to make a a, a point, a, a theological point, but also a stylistic point. The point Peter is, you never stop forgiving. You would never say, ah, Carl, I've forgiven you 78 times, you know, or whatever. Like, we, we, we that's not the point. And the same thing happens here. When he see, it says this number, what he's saying is, I've sealed for myself groups from amongst the believers of, of the church, new, new covenant, and old covenant believers, 12 and the 12. And how many? Enough, thousand. The number thousand is an, an, not necessarily an, uh, meant to be taken literally. And I think this, again, is given proof based on the list of those tribes. The reason I read them is because, well, it's Scripture. Two, it's very important because there's two at least two problems with that list, and every scholar knows it, and we don't know why John is given a broken list. The list has two issues. Every single time the tribes are listed in the Bible, it starts with Judah. Or, sorry, with Reuben, not with Judah. But here it starts with Judah. Why? The second thing is, he leaves out two tribes, and he adds two tribes. He leaves out Dan and Ephraim, but he adds Levi and Joseph. You think, well, Levi was a tribe. No, Levi's never listed because Levi, if you recall, wasn't given land. Right? Levi was said, you're separate. The Levites are going to be the pastorly types. You have no pension, (laughs) no pension in the land. Your job is to serve God and trust him. So we have to ask the question, why is Judah first? And why does he leave out Dan and, and Ephraim, and add Joseph and Levi. So we can't answer them all, I don't have time. But there's enough reason here for me to look at it and say, he is showing us that this is meant to show us the entire believer, the world of church uh, uh, and believers of all time, not just Israel, that's being shown here. First, Judah is first. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And something has happened in history that has altered the way things should be seen. And Reuben is no longer primary, but the tribe, that birth, the Messiah, is first. Something has happened. So that's first. Remember this. The people of the tribes of Israel have now become the people redeemed by the Lamb. And so, that doesn't exclude Israel, of course, because there's people of faith all through history. Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, here we have Judah at the start signifying, I think, and most people will say, that this is a sign towards this people of God is now wider, it's larger. But look at why Dan is excluded. Dan was notorious for um, idolatry. Read 1 Kings 12, when Israel splits between, after Solomon, Rehoboam splits the kingdom with Jeroboam the I. And uh, right away, the northern kingdom realizes, if I let my people go to Jerusalem to worship, they're going to stay there. So I'm going to set up a rival shrine up in, in the north. And one of them is in Dan, and it's a golden idol. It's a, it's a calf. And many non-biblical texts tell us that the Israelites believed, and still many do, that the Antichrist will come, or the, the, this, the great enemy will come from the tribe of Dan, because he is that. He's, he's become known as an idol worshiper. So if we see him pulled out of the name of the faithful, even though he was promised it, you, some people say, if he was promised it, why is he not there? He wasn't. Salvation has always been by faith, never by circumcision. That's the point of Galatians. Dan being out of the group, and then Levi coming in, who was symbolically supposed to worship God and not trust on anything but God for his food, for his land, for his future, is there. We see the idolater removed and the faithful symbol- symbolic group added. Is that because we're now being told faith has always is and has always been? The ones who are sealed are the ones who are faithful. Is that what's happening? Well, let's go on because even further. In chapter 21, when we get there, the new heaven, the new earth comes down. And have you noticed the new earth comes down and it has surprising dimensions of 144? Right? The dimensions. But one of the interesting things, it says the walls around this new city have 12 gates. And the 12 gates have the names of each of the tribes on it. And the 12 foundations under it are the apostles. So the next time we start seeing these numbers show up, it's talking about capital C church, not just Israel. So, uh, in fact, here's more interesting. When Isaiah says that all the people will stream to the city of God at some point in history when when he returns, he says they will come into the city through the gates, symbolically. As they come in, through the gates, they come in and they go through the tribal name, and they are symbolically being told, you are now welcome as the people of God into the kingdom. And All of this stuff in this first eight verses tells me the 144,000 are believers. All of that to tell you the 144,000 are believers, not just Jews, I don't believe. If you disagree with me, I'd be surprised, but you might. And we'll talk about that on Thursday, so don't ask questions yet. But that's one. Then, that's what he hears. Then John turns and he sees. So what does he see? A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So, logic is very simple. He sees the servants. Chapter 15, verse 15 is going to say the servants. I'm not going to quite yet, but good try, Ben. Um, so he sees, the, he sees the servants. Here's logic for you in the passage. The servants are sealed. The sealed are the 144,000. So who is he seeing? 144,000, it seems. Now, but let's go even further, because something weird happens, and here is where you can put that slide up now, Ben. There's an order problem. Revelation is notorious for throwing everything we think we know about the Bible, the patterns we've seen for 65 books, get thrown off in the 66th. And one of them is the order of nation, tribe, and tongue, right? How we say it, we've heard it, and it, it pops up in these various instances. And the order is different here. Why? Why? We have to ask that question. So, first, in Daniel, pops up, and it says, people, nations, languages. Revelation 5.9 says, tribe, language, people, nation. And they're always the same Greek words, by the way, phile, glossa, laos, and ethne. I won't bother you with that. But Revelation 10 says, people, nations, language, kings. Revelation 13, tribe, people, language, nation. Only Revelation 7 in the entire Bible opens this s- sequence with nation. Why? Scholars have to ask that question. Why is he changing things on us? We don't like changes. Why? Is it possible here, and this is where most would agree, is it possible he puts nations here first because he is saying the promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed, meaning capital C Church, all believers will be blessed, and he's saying it's being fulfilled. That promise in Genesis 12 and in 15 have now been fulfilled in this ceiling in Christ, in the Lamb of Judah. Is it possible? Well, we think so. And then, of course, what is, they have white robes. Logical. White robes are the big theology term, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Right? You are made whole by Christ. They are given the white robes. They have palm branches signifying worship and celebration and joy. And then, well, I'll leave it there. So who is sealed? It's very simple, I think. The servants of God from all generations whom God has sealed for himself and marked for his service and worship. I think that's pretty evident here. So, what is the seal? The Holy Spirit. Who is he given the Holy Spirit to? His servants. That he has chosen for himself and he now, what, now the question is, well, what does that mean? Why was it given? And what does that do? What's the practical implications? And here we move to the last question. What does it mean? So, the church needs help to endure. This part I know some people struggle with because there's certain men on the radio who will disagree with me. That's okay. I think they're wrong, they think I'm wrong. Revelation 7.14 says, who is this coming out? Remember, the angel says, who is this? And, and what's the elder's response? These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. The Greek word is very simple. These are not people who came out before or came out after. They're coming out in the midst of it. These are people struggling in the Great Tribulation. You're not raptured before it, I'm sorry. I know another email will come. And when Matthew 24, Christ says, I will deliver you to the... You'll be delivered to the tribulation, the great tribulation. It seems as though we will be amidst the tribulation, not the wrath of God. There's a difference. And I'll explain that in a second because I think this is where people can get confused. But the seal, when you're sealed and the trouble comes, there's at least three things for speed sake, I have to say. The seal brings certainty, power, and security. So let me explain those three. First one is certainty. If I buy something, or if I sell something on Facebook Marketplace, right, um, and somebody wants my product, if they give me money for it in advance, then I don't care how long it sits in my garage. It doesn't matter because I know they're going to come get it because they already paid for it, right? It's the problem is if they say, "Oh, I'll come for it," and there's no down payment. That's a problem. So. When Christ comes and he says, I have given you this Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, he's saying, listen, you can know with certainty that I will return for you. And I bought you in a certain way, and I'm, I want, I'm not going to take back a broken thing. I'm, it's, it's certain. You're mine. I've sealed you for me. And if that isn't clear enough, in Romans 8, I thought we were going to read it earlier, but we didn't, 8, 15 to 17, here's what Paul says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father here's the key the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if if children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him so we have been given this spirit this spirit the seal and he's not just there as a stamp on you i don't think we should be looking for a mark a physical mark Instead, the Spirit comes, and the way He provides certainty is when you are not sure if you're saved. People ask me this this week, it came up because of the question of election. How do I know if I'm saved? You're, and they say, well, I don't feel like I'm saved. That's irrelevant. How you feel is irrelevant as to whether you're saved or not. The question is, have you been sealed or not? And if, you, if Christ says you are sealed, you are saved, Then when somebody comes and says, I'm struggling with my assurance, I say, don't listen to your feelings, they can't be trusted. Trust the Word. The Word says, if you trust Him, you're saved. That can be certainly appropriated and believed beyond your emotions. And the seal then comes to assure you, because when trial comes, you're not going to believe it. If trial comes and you are waiting for a rapture, but you're stuck here suffering, it's easy to say, it must not be true. Unless you say, I'm not going to believe what I see, But instead, what I've been told, and what I read in Scripture, which is why John presents things to us the way he does. Here's what the truth is behind the curtain. So there's a certainty that we get by being sealed. And he does that because he wants us to endure through whatever we're going through. Then, power. God always enables what he commands. It's a big theological idea, but it's very simple. If God ever commands anything, he will make it happen. He doesn't expect you to do it on your own. He will make it happen. Let me give you an example. In Exodus, when God says to Israel, I've heard your groanings and you'll be taken out of slavery, it would be easy for them to say, how? But instead, what does he say every time he speaks about it? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I told you you had to come out and I brought you out. I don't expect you to do it on your own. I'll do it. What I ask you, what I command, I will enable. Think about more profoundly chapter 5 of John. He sees a man who's a paralytic for 38 years, right, laying down. And what does he say? In fact, I think I've got it up here. Um, Jesus said to him, "'Get up, take your bed, and walk.' And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked." Now, he was healed so that he could obey the command to walk. Okay? Healing by God only comes to enable you to obey the command. When people say, well, I'm not a believer, but I prayed that I'd be healed, and I'm not healed. Now, listen, I don't know the mind of God, but I know this. He doesn't heal simply because he's just saying, I'm just going to heal everybody. He's healing us so that we will walk and follow him. That's the ultimate goal. That's the primary goal of healing. He only frees us and pulls you out of Egypt. Why? To go worship me in the wilderness. He doesn't free you just so you can go on sinning. That's not the point. And when he says to the man, get up and walk, he then heals him to answer and to obey the command to get up and walk. You see the difference. See that? It happens all the time in Scripture. You're going to start seeing it everywhere. That he enables what he commands. And so when he comes to you and I, what he is saying is, I'm going to, you're going to endure and you're going to make through whatever tribulation you have to go through. And the reason I know you'll make it through is because I'm going to drag you through it. I'm going to give you my spirit to assure you and comfort you and guide you through it. But I will drag you through because I made a promise to save you and I'm not expecting you to save yourself. I will save you. I will drag you through it. So there's power with this seal. More I can say, security is the last one. So, notice it says, I'm very careful here. Security, not safety. Not safety. He continually tells the disciples, you're going to suffer, you're going to die. He tells Peter things are not going to go well for him. He never promises safety. Only security. In Exodus 12 again, it's interesting, isn't it, that of the ten plagues that befall Egyptians, the first three, we don't hear that Israel was spared them. The other ones you do. They're told. But what happens? Israel, in the midst of those plagues, for instance, is secure, meaning you will be pulled out of it. I said I would. But you're in the world, and you may suffer blowback from the sinners in the world, just the way, unfortunately, life can be. And in uh, let me use an example here. They were, called, so they were promised they'd come out, he dragged them out, and there may have been blowback. But let me use a, very, a real example from the Reformation. John Calvin, you know, John Calvin, I know people this week said, I can't believe you're a Calvinist, Carl. Um, it's okay. So, John Calvin was, was going to reconsider the doctrine of election one day. Him and his group, his buddies got together and said, we have to think about this carefully, we have to make sure we're right. And they got a letter from three guys in France, Three men in France were sentenced to be killed because they were Protestants and not Catholics. They were going to be burned at the stake. And the letter said, Mr. Calvin, whatever you do, do not tell me that I am not safely a Christian. And cho- I need to know he chose me. I need to know. And they said this, Mr. Calvin, when I am being burned alive at the stake, I may recant. I'm burned alive. I might say something I shouldn't. I will say anything when I'm b- to being tortured. And I need to know that my flesh is weak, but his grip on me is tighter than my grip on him. I need to know that I am chosen, and I didn't just, I'm i not just hanging on by my faith to him. I need to know his faith on me is stronger. The example I use of my own life is when our old church house in, in Tilsonburg, we had a creepy basement, and uh, no, nobody would go down there, only me. <laughs> Even Sarah would not go. And when I would go down with Caleb, when he was little at the time, he would hold my hand like he was going to crush it. Like he was, everybody was afraid of this place. Now, here's the silliness. Blessing children, we hold the hand of our dad because we think if there's a monster in the basement, my grip on my dad will save me. But it's not true. If there's a monster, his grip on me will save me. He's the one I'm trusting, not me. That's why I'm holding him. I'm hoping his grip is harder on me. And this is the security that we're promised. You might suffer in the world. In fact, my friends, I know you. You have suffered. And we may suffer more. If, whenever this stuff all comes to pass. But we need to know that amazing grace, that wonderful hymn, is true. Through many toils, or dangerous toils and snares, we have already come. Twas grace that brought me safe this far, is that right? Safe this far? And grace will bring me home. And this is a security. He, does, he doesn't promise you'll be okay and you'll make it through with all your limbs and fingers and hair, teeth, waist size. That's not, not promised. your security nothing of value will be lost nothing this is what he is saying continually to us the spirit and the seal in us will bring us he'll guide us give us words assure us comfort us empower us all so that we get whatever was promised because god is will never not fulfill his promise and here's how oh my goodness there's so much i can say but i can't here's how we know how do you trust this how do i trust this god carl i don't want it's difficult to trust the god of any type because we love control. How do I do it? This is why I'm convinced and scripture is convinced you can trust God over anything else. Ephesians, if you kept reading that passage that I read earlier, verse 17 and 18 say this, Paul's praying, he says this, I pray. he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of, of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what it is, sorry, what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, you notice that last line? Earlier, Paul says, the seal comes as a down payment, so you know you'll get everything you're inherited, you're supposed to inherit. Look at what it says here. His inheritance in the saints. It's Paul saying, not only are you sealed so that you know you're going to get God, but he sees you as his inheritance. You are the glorious inheritance. We're being told that the God of the universe who needs nothing can still say and, and speak in such a way as to say he stands to gain something by getting you. I don't understand it. I really don't understand it. Here's where I have to accept some sort of mystery. How are we an inheritance to the king who needs nothing? And yet, this is the way it speaks. And if there is a God who loves us in such a way as to see value in our broken everything, I can trust him. He's coming back because somehow, for some reason, he values me. And this is when we hear the last seal open. Last seal opens, and what happens? Silence. Why is there silence at the end? I, we don't know. Scholars don't know. It doesn't, there's, isn't it funny how scripture gives you sometimes too much information and sometimes not enough? Why is there silence at the end? I think here's my the Carl idea. First, What else would there be when all resistance to God has been broken? There's nobody left to clamor. Remember seal 6? Everything has come undone. The kingdom of heaven is now invaded and successfully occupied the kingdom of earth. And so there's no more clamor. What else is there but silence? But there's also a sense in which, is there awe, maybe? Is it silence of fear? Is it silence of appreciation? I, I don't know. I'm not so sure we have to choose between them, to be honest. But there's a silence that comes at the end because there's no more resisting there's no more fighting there's no more arguing it's all come undone and all that's left is glorious silence and with this skeptic if you're a skeptic listening I think now's the time to say I don't want to resist anymore I'm sick of resisting I want that silence that peace that transcends all understanding that we have even in part now as Christians that when all the world is going where it's going we can say It is well with our soul. If you're a skeptic, lay down your arms, repent, and follow this great king who values you, even though you have never valued him. If we are a Christian, this is why I do love the old hymns. Again, I know them written better than I do as singing. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. This is the joy. that, Thankfully, Christ sees how difficult chapter 6 was for John and for all of us. And he throws this in and says, but don't worry, I've got you in this. Not because of you, but because he loves us. That assurance, cling to this assurance, not just as you read the rest of Revelation, but for your whole life. Let's pray.